Yes, it's me, Mike Stone, and this is the Backseat Driver Podcast. It's the fastest, it's the friendliest, and it's for all the family. The Gas Shocks 116 Trophy and 120 Coupe Cup are the fastest growing race series in the UK, taking in six one-hour races and eight sprints at all the top circuits. Visit 116trophy.com to find out more and get yourself behind the wheel. From a pot of tea to TT motorbikes. From a classic English breakfast to a full serving of classic cards. Bridge House Tea Rooms is the Northwest Premier Classic Car Meeting location for cars, bikes, tractors, and owners clubs. So no matter what your automotive appetite might be, visit Bridge House Farm Tea Rooms on their Facebook page or call John and Alicia on 07980-444-221 for show details and to reserve your own table and parking space. I'd like to welcome to the Backseat Driver radio show Lorraine Gathercall, chair of the British Women Racing Drivers Club, Chair of the Motorsport Committee for Motorsport U, one of the people involved with Gathercall Race Engineering Limited, racing driver and rally driver. Lion, welcome to the Backseat Driver Radio Show. Thank you, Mark. Lovely to speak to you. Where does this passion for motorsport come from? Because you weren't exactly backward at coming forward in it now, are you? <laughs> uh, it started a long time ago. I suddenly reached the age of 30 and, and panicked. Now what am I going to do with my life? And and took up motorsports. <laughs> a very un- unconventional start. <laughs> Is it a family tradition? Have, have your family always been involved in motorsport? No, not at all. I had a, an uncle who, who raced and he encouraged me into an empty midget. And that, that's the first race car I had but yeah no that was all really it just really did pop out of nowhere did he also forewarn you that you would be poor for the rest of your life <laughs> no <laughs> no he didn't he sold me my first car yeah <laughs> and you go on you never saw him from that day forth <laughs> yeah <laughs> You would start with, basically, then I conclude, sprinting and hill climbing, which is the way most of us all go into it, with a small... Because I started with an MG Midget, and that's the one thing you do. You take up sprinting and hill climbing and things like that. No, I went straight onto circuit racing. I did my arts test at Mallory Park, and now it's straight into racing. (laughs) (laughs) So you you, you didn't progress up the ladder then? You went in at the deep end? There's only a road going, MG Midget. <laughs> <laughs> to which you suddenly realise at Mallory Park, this maybe is a little bit more than I thought it was. It's not like driving round the uh, dri- driving down the local air roads, is it? <laughs> well, my stress race was at Silverstone. Oh, yeah. And how did you go on in the first race? My challenge was to not be last, and I achieved that, but only just. <laughs> <laughs> It's like our mutual friend Carol Canoe said, she said, I set off and worked on the theory, if I'm not last, I'll be delighted. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't have any expectations, and uh, yeah, that, that was it. Just don't be last. 
<laughs> so where did you progress from there? Because, I mean, you are, as we've said, you're, you're now very respected in the world of motor racing, but how did your race, per, your personal racing career progress? Um, I stuck with the MG for six years, and the sixth year I won the championship. Yeah. And it's funny, when you're not winning, you're popular. Yeah. <laughs> Amongst your fellow racers. Yeah. And then when you start winning... You're not quite so <laughs> The very last race of the championship, I just meet the person that could have beaten me in the championship, had to beat me and put another person between us. He deliberately took me out on the last race of the year. And and that was just like the final straw, really, of, of bad feeling. And so I decided that I wasn't going to... I wasn't going to defend it. Yeah. And... Within a week of finishing and winning the championship, I put the car up for sale, sold it very quickly, and moved on. Yeah. I concluded your racing career, continued from there. What, what did you move into? Yeah, that's <laughs> a strange one. <laughs> I moved into a Group 6 Coldwell, which is a 1971 uh, Le Mans Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A bit like going from, well, it was a, a road going mid up to a Le Mans car. Yeah. But you would no doubt have found, <laughs> really some, you don't, you'd have found something of a change in performance and handling there, wouldn't you? Ever so slightly. Ever so But it was challenging. I, I loved it. I loved the car and the power and the noise. And suddenly I was racing in places like Spa. And it just... It was just so amazing to, to have, yeah, gone up such a big level. I wasn't competitive to start off with at that level. Um, but after, I think about my third year, I, I was in top five. So yeah. I was getting there. <laughs> the other interesting thing is, you like you mentioned Spa. Probably like me, myself, you grow up knowing about these legendary circuits but the moment you roll your wheels out the pit lane and you're actually on them, you suddenly realise why they are legendary circuits. Yeah, the big thing with Spa was that I said to my husband, we must work the circuit before I go <laughs> out because I haven't got a clue where this goes. And suddenly discover how steep it is in parts. <laughs> yeah, it is so steep. It doesn't feel like that when you're driving a car, but... It, it, it is a, quite a shock to the system to suddenly realise how, how steep some of these circuits are and how big it was. Yes. Because up until then, I think the biggest circuit I'd probably done was Struxton. Yeah. <laughs> I think the other thing is as well, you stand and look at a piece of circuit and you look at it and you think, look at that. Then all of a sudden you think, I'm supposed to do this flat in top. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I need a really big brave pill. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but I mean the circuits are legendary for a reason. They 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 were the circuits that shall we say made the champions, weren't they? Yes. Absolutely. And today's top drivers still want to be at all those circuits. They all want to do Monza. Um, you talk about my all-time favourite circuit there. The all-time favourite circuit for me is Monza. 
my all-time favourite corner is a scory. I've always said if you, when you get a scory right and you, you exit with a smile on your face because you, <laughs> you've deserved to have a smile on your face. You've earned it. Yeah. <laughs> As time's gone by, do you, do, I conclude you still race, but you also rally now, don't you? I do, yes. My, my husband challenged me to take up, to, to do my bars test, basically, not actually take up rallying. He said to me that go and do your, go and do the day and do your bars test because it'll give you more confidence in the wet and slide in the car and things like this. He was busy flying, just took up flying. And so off I went to Bill Gwynn School and did my bars test. And on the way home, I phoned him up and said, I passed. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, that's handy, because I went to join the Montreal Club. <laughs> the rallying you do, is it is it what you would call modern rallying, or do you, uh, no. do you rally historics? It's historics. So I have a, a Mark I Escort which, with a BDG engine in it, and it's, yeah, it's full historic spec. I did... Uh, in order to do the Roger Albert Clark, I had to get a National A licence, which required me to finish four events. So I did three little tarmac events, and then I did a forest event. Them, tree, then, and it, them trees close. But, <laughs> and at night, they really jump out. <laughs> <laughs> and those lights that you thought were really bright and really good when you were looking at them in your garage... <laughs> <laughs> really rubbish when you get into a forest. <laughs> I think the the real difficulty for a racer in rallying is is trusting someone else to tell you where to go because you're used to trusting your own instincts and going round and round the same circuit. You recognise where you are all the time, whereas in rallying, especially like long events, you just you you, you don't learn. Where you're going, so no. you're totally reliant on your your co-driver. But the, the the positive is when you get to the end of the stage, there's someone in the car next to you to share that moment of elation. Um, or or, 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 or pass or pass comment on where you went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment. I mean, I've always. I mean, uh, uh, one of my guests was Steve Entwistle, who is a champion, historic rally champion. He tried cold driving and he, he took up driving because I thought I can do better than he can. I've had a go at cold driving and I lose track of the notes because as a natural driver, I look out of the front window. I've always said I like to see what I'm going to hit, but I've always said it's a special person who can cold drive. I think it's, yeah, it's a completely different skill set. Um when I did the Roger Albert Clark, I, I was due to have one particular co-driver who had done everything with me to that point. My husband's co-driver went sick, so he stole mine. That's kind of him. <laughs> does, he not, does he not know the protocol in this sport? I don't <laughs> And, and I, I ended up touting around the paddock trying to find someone who'd sit next to me. And the person who very kindly offered to sit next to me was Chris Skill, and he's a, a very proficient rally driver yeah but we got lost lost going to the first day <laughs> <laughs> he had never sat in the in the silly thing yeah. <laughs> um, but we, we did get there and we, we finished all five days we obviously learned in the end but yeah it, it, it's a very different skill to driving and and it's i think drivers would naturally he did 
coach me driving wise, but because then looked down at the notes and didn't know where he was. Didn't, didn't know where you were anymore. <laughs> You're on your own. <laughs> How have you found the trans? Which do you prefer, or do you still prefer? Do you still enjoy the both? It's been really difficult because I've only recently taken up rallying, and then we've had COVID this year, which has been a, a nightmare. So I actually have only had opportunity to do one race this year. Yeah, which was the Brands Hatch Super Pre, and and I've done one rally so far this year. They're just so different. I love the cars, and and I love all historic cars. Yeah. They're just different skills and different, you get different things out of them. Yeah. Over different disciplines, really. I don't know. I'm more familiar with racing, so it'd be very easy to say racing. Yeah. But the camaraderie in rallying is probably far greater. Yeah. The, the one thing that is known is when racing drivers rally, they will do take certain corners or drive the car in a slightly different way to a pure rally driver. Do you find you do that? Oh, I don't know if I'm experienced enough to. <laughs> <laughs> I still look to take a corner, what you would call the line. Yes, yeah. Whereas rally drivers look to, it's like the Scandi flick, they look to slide them round corners. I don't. I look to drive them round corners. Yes. No, I am learning to slide more and I'm so comfortable with that. Yeah. Uh, that that's a big transition, I think. Between racing and rallying. <laughs> Both things. How do these translate into your being chair of the British Women Racing Drivers Club, which is a renowned club? But as we as we were saying before we went on air, you are supported by the British Racing Drivers Club, but you are not part of it. How does all that work for you and with you? Um, I, I actually... Went into the committee of the club back in 2001, and I've been secretary, and I've been press officer, and I've been vice chair, and, and now I'm chair. And it's the opportunity to share with other women who are actually out there doing it. There's lots of clubs for, and, and groups for women who think they'd like to go and do a bit of motor school, or that would like, yeah, would like to go, but but don't actually make it happen. Yes. Whereas the club is for people who are actually out there doing it, and maybe at different levels. So we have lots of club racers racing very, on a very modest budget, and then we've got people who are racing at a very high level and, and spending hundreds of thousands a year. It's an opportunity to mix and see what all of the girls and the women get out of their motorsport and learning all the time from each other, really. Yeah. And supporting each other. And that, That's the other thing. It's a subject I've touched on with many of the other lady racing drivers that I've had on. Okay, there's the, uh, there's the W Series, but most women racing drivers I encounter want to race against men they don't want their own series they want to be able to go out and race what is your opinion on this and what do you find your bwrdc members take on this i think most of us we had no option there wasn't a, a women's series and the reality is the w series is for women who are already competing anyway and have been competing. So it's, these aren't new to the sport, and so they're all used to racing against men. So 
what W series has done is give girls who probably didn't have a budget to race at such a high level yeah. that opportunity. They've got some really good marketing and they've got some really good sponsors, which has enabled them to offer yeah people with no budget a chance to race at a high level yeah. and in front of big audiences to give them the best opportunity of being spotted and, and, and taken up by big teams to take them forward. Yeah. But all the girls who are who are racing W series currently, they they, they were racing before. They weren't novices. They've all raced at a very good level already. Yeah. The club were actually invited to the W series race at Brands Hatch the first year. And then also the opportunity to go down and was so impressed. Yeah. They are very keen to encourage girls and women to to be involved. And, and it, okay, not everyone's going to be a racing driver, but whether it's a marshalist or being an engineer and the mechanics and in every aspect, they're encouraging girls to think of it as an, op- an option, as a career choice. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really a good thing to be having that young people do see it's like young girls who see it's an option it's not just for the boys yeah one thing that has been leveled un- unkindly or kindly at uh, the w series is it's tangible proof that 22 women in single seaters are as just as boring as 22 men in single seaters um <laughs> but it's one of those things, as I said, a lot of the women racing drivers I know, and like yourself, you raced against men to a degree that uh, a man took took you off the circuit to make sure he won the championship and not you. But it's one of those things, when I've been in the paddocks and the pit lanes, you just re- I always regarded a woman racing driver as a racing driver. Yeah. And I think most of us, that's how we see ourselves. We just, yeah, we... And, and really, we've got our ovals and our helmets on. You can't tell any difference, can you? Unless you happen to be wearing pink. We're <laughs> not to not. <laughs> and even Formula One has pink outfits. Yes, I'm, I'm just trying to think. There was a team that ran, ran a pink car, but... Well, that's the only thing as well. When you're out there, it, you see a car. For, as, as a driver, you see a car that has a driver in it. It never dawns on you unless you happen to recognise the car. I notice your dog's joining in quietly with us. Yes, I've just shut a door to try to stop a young puppy. <laughs> but, no, you see a car, and occasionally you will see the outline of a driver behind the wheel, a helmet behind the wheel, but it never dawns on you that, oh, it's a woman, because I've always said, I want in that corner before the car next to me, and the car next to me wants to be in that corner before I am, and you just race. Yeah. And I, I think the majority of racers, yeah, they are just racing. They're not worried about what sex the other person is, what the gender is. It's It really, I don't think for most people it has any bearing. I do think that in, in my earlier days there was a bit more sexism, but I think it's well hidden now, perhaps. Yeah, I suppose I'm as guilty as anybody. You, 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 you do pass, you, you did pass the odd comment, but the strange thing was back then... Nobody really bothered about some of these comments. It was just racing. We possibly we can't possibly pass some of the comments that are passed in pit lanes and in paddocks, but the banter has always been quite fierce amongst drivers. But, but it's just banter. Yeah. It, 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 it is just banter, and I, and I think you have to be a bit tougher than that, really. And, um, 
and give as good as you get. Yeah. <laughs> and as I said, you're a, you're a chair of the Motorsport Committee of the yeah. of Motorsport UK. What does that involve? So, so I'm, I'm involved. I'm, I'm the chair of the Historic Committee. Right. The historic Committee are looking at the the rules and trying stop historic cars evolving too much really because there's always a temptation to to make your car better and better everyone wants to win yeah and that's not what historic motorsport is supposed to be about it's supposed to be preserving the history of these cars mm. and so our remit is very much to to look at the to keep an eye on the rules to keep keep an eye on how the rules might be being bent. Yeah. And and second guessing what, what people are going to try and do and write it in the rules so that they can't. Well, uh, I conclude you'll inspect all the papers because most historic racing cars, especially if they are the original cars, will have the paperwork that backs yeah. up what they are and to a degree will back up the technical specifications of them. Yes, but that, that, that is right and the papers are checked and the papers will be right before they're issued. Yeah. But seeing that that doesn't stop cars evolving over the 10 years that the papers are issued. Yeah. It's monitoring that, but also recognising that maybe you can no longer get parts for that gearbox. Yeah. What alternative gearbox can we allow for that car not to give it a performance advantage? Yeah but to enable it to carry on competing. And brake calipers have been a problem, that some brake calipers have yeah. been no longer available. You just can't buy them, and therefore we don't want to see these cars not being able to compete. Yeah. So we have to be realistic about, okay, what options are there that, that isn't going to act as a performance in heart segment to, to give that particular car a greater chance of winning. Yeah. So we, we have, we're, we're always looking at how can we... Yeah, make it so that the cars can continue competing without getting too far out of um, sync with the rest of the competitors, really. Yeah. I mean, like you mentioned Gearbox, the car was a five-speed, had a five-speed transmission in it then. It must only have a five-speed transmission in it now. And brake pads, I conclude, they will. That you will try and make sure that they are fitted with brake pads that give them more or less the same retardation that they were used to back in the day, and it doesn't take, it, it doesn't allow them to hit the pedal twenty yards later. No, but the, but the, the thing is that uh, I mean, my husband, our, our business is building race engines. Yeah, and the tolerances that we can achieve nowadays compared to the tolerances that could have been achieved back in the seventies when the engines were first built. It is so different, and the machining capabilities is, is much higher. So the engines are naturally faster than they were in periods. Yeah. Fuel is better. Oil is better. There is a natural, but it's trying to contain how far these advances can go. So, yeah, that, that's what the committee is always looking at, and, and there's 14 of us that uh, get together two or three times a year and, and look at... So, Anything that any competitor brings up is, we yeah. want to look at this and is this right and is it fair that this car can do this? So that's what we're doing and, and trying to halt. So I conclude to, if, you sit down, if, you, if, if you sit down this year and look at last year's figures, if a well-known historic car has suddenly shaved six, sep- six seconds off its lap time, you'll have a look at it. Yeah, <laughs> and lots of, lots of people will look at 
say the Good Wood Revival. Yeah. And they'll say, that car in 1960 did that lap time and that same car now is doing 10 seconds a lap faster. Yeah. How can that be? Yeah. And there's not so the tarmac is better. The surface yeah. is better. The, the tyres are better. Yeah. So there are so many areas in the race car that, that will have improved over the last 50 odd years. Yeah. To create that that improvement. Yeah. But it, but it is trying to stop it, get too advanced, too far. Yeah. And do you also look at the fact that historic motorsport is becoming... Like we just said motorsport is expensive to start with, but it's racing some of these historic cars, these original historic cars, is now becoming, it's now becoming the preserve of the millionaire in many ways. Do you look to try and make it that ordinary folk can take part in historics? Well, I think ordinary folk are competing in historics. The price brackets of the cars goes massively high when you're talking about a car that's got exceptional provenance. If Jim Clark happened to have driven a car, it, it, it's going to be worth so much more than yeah. the same car if he hadn't. And and I think, generally speaking, the cars that are, are very expensive, it is because they have some kind of provenance like that. Yeah. Whereas you can race in historic motorsport with an MG midget. <laughs> Back to my <laughs> But you can. You can buy an MG midget for... Seven or eight thousand converted to race spec. It's not out of the domain of most people who can afford to go racing in the first place. Yeah, and there's there's lots of opportunities to race more budget priced historic cars in historic sports car club or in the classic sports car club. There's lots of places where you can race these cars. Yeah, more affordably, shall we say, than just looking at Silverstone Classic, Goodwood Revival. Le Mans Classic. If you look at those three events, then you're not really looking at the whole picture of historic motorsport. No. It does encompass much more budget-priced cars. And as, as we move forward, it's like the world of classic cars. We now have classic cars up to the year of 2005. And it's one of those things, the great thing about that is it allows young classic car enthusiasts to take part because a young classic car enthusiast looks upon a car from the 1990s as being a classic car. Do you revise what qualifies as an historic car or a classic car? We sit very much with the FIA on that. So we try to align ourselves with the FIA where possible. And at the moment, we'll take 1990 is a cut-off for historic cars. But that that, that date will, will naturally move. Yeah. You'll be able to take, in many respects, some like the European touring cars will start to be involved in all this, won't they? Yes, yeah. Yeah, and I think you'll find the Historic Sports Car Club is opening up the race championships to cars from that era. Yeah. And just out of interest, of all the historic eras, which, are the, which is the one that gets you going the most? Which are the one that you love to go and watch and drive in? I'm 60s and 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the cars are less complicated. Yeah. We race as a husband and wife. We look after the cars ourselves at the event, before the event, after the event. And that era, it's possible for people with the sensible amount of mechanical knowledge to be able to look after the cars themselves. Yeah. You start getting a lot later and there's too many electronic gizmos. (laughs) (laughs) 
The the on-track rivalry, by the sounds of it, can continue when you get back home as well, I conclude, since you race with your husband and against your husband. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Just out of interest, what does your husband race? We actually have a Lola 212 that we both share. Yeah. So we do two driver races in that. Yeah. We've raced in an Elan, and our, our biggest achievement was we won Plateau 4 at Classic Le Mans. 12 as the only husband and wife team ever to have won at Le Mans, so that was <laughs> <laughs> Who owns the trophy? <laughs> it's in the cupboard. Both of our names is on it. Now, the, the, but, um, sorry, sorry, carry on. I, I was going to say that we did have one coming together, which I should own up to, because <laughs> we were both driving Formula 2 cars. David was driving a full-blown Formula 2, and I was in an Atlantic car at Spa. Yeah. And uh, we did have coming together, and we saw we wouldn't actually compete at the same time with each other ever again. <laughs> so that's now why you share a car, because there's no way you can actually take each other off, then, is there? Much safer. Now, your motorsport, of course, translates across during your everyday working lives into Gadicol Race Engines Limited. What exactly is Gadicol? It's self-explanatory in the name, but what exactly do you guys do? We uh, manufacture a lot of the parts for the BDG engine and also FVC and Motors Twin Cam engines. Yes. And we build the engines and we rebuild them when they need rebuilding. Yes. That's what we do, but just a very small core group of engines that we specialise in. Yeah. The one problem we've had with 2020 is a decrease in racing. I conclude your problem's been at the moment is nobody's blowing them up enough, are they? They're not blowing them up. They're not not wearing them up. That effect, they don't blow up that often. (laughs) But but they they do need to be rebuilt after 1,200 competitive miles. And... In rallying terms, uh, when they're doing a lot of road work, it's probably three or four rallies. Yeah. Well, so there would be a mid-season rebuild as well as an end-of-season rebuild for, for people who are doing a championship. And because that hasn't happened this year, there is, yeah, there's a definite decline in our business. Yeah. We, we've had to cut staffing at the moment, but that's just the nature of the beast, and and we're all hoping for better things next year, aren't we? So yeah, but in, in your position of that, do you are you able to sponsor anybody, any young and upcoming drivers, or were you able to sponsor? Should I say we don't sponsor anyone. We have we can help on the cost of engine rebuilds and things like that. It's not really a field where you would sponsor young people because they would, the young people who are trying to make it in motorsport don't go to historic motorsport. Yeah. It's not like you're helping a, a future Formula One star. Yeah. That isn't a natural route. We try to price our products fairly and competitively for everyone, really. Yeah. So we don't do that on a personal level through the BWRDC, I support lots of the girls with help with their PR and promoting them. Yeah. And very much with that hat on. Yeah, I do a lot of work with young people who are trying to take you go up the ladder, climb that ladder. Do you ever find that you can get a young driver in an historic racing car or rally car and 
the young driver will be stunned as to just what the performance is of some of these cars. We haven't. Some young people do, do go into historics and they're often shocked at, at just how fast these cars are. Yeah. Because they assume they're old bangers. <laughs> uh, I, I, I remember <laughs> I remember Formula 2 race at Donington Park and the, they, the modern day Formula 2s invited historic Formula 2 along to be a support race because mm. they thought that would be quite fun. Yeah. But then the historic cars were only a smidging of the time of the modern F2 cars and, and were never invited back. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's quite interesting. Modern cars have restrictors and they're very much restricted on the size of their tyres and all sorts of things, really. It's not a fair comparison, but it, I think it was quite shocking to these young guns who were racing F2, modern F2, that these old men in old bangers were, were pretty much as fast. I think the thing is, when you with, with historic cars, whereas the modern car will, shall we say, rely on its aero and its braking and everything else, oh. the old cars, you keep your footing with them. You, you've got to keep them going. So where a modern car could be slowing for a corner, the historic will still be f flat as it wants to carry its speed around these corners. Yes, and quite often the, the older cars will have a bigger engine. Yeah. Quite simply, they'll have more horsepower. They'll be lighter. They'll have a much greater power-to-weight ratio. Yeah. But, but it, it's very easy for young people to assume the modern stuff would be much faster. Yeah. Taking you back to your role with the BWRDC and your role in the with motorsport uk where do you see women's motorsport going i will from shall we say my own point of view it's nice to see with more women racing cars not for any other reason it's just nice to see because you get to chat you get to chat to some prettier people we have got more women competing i think there are more women with disposable income than perhaps historically and so if they can see that it's an option to go to motorsport and, and i think it's all about a visibility but, but naturally, we will get more and more. And, and I think W Series, going back to that, that has created visibility. They did have the the, um, the racing on terrestrial television. So lots of people, lots of girls, women will have seen that and thought, oh, didn't know that women raced. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, it will inspire more people, more girls and women to, to go racing. Yeah. I, I think it... And generally, in society, there's more equality. Yeah. So there's less barriers. And so there should be. Yeah. Now, if somebody wants to get hold of Lorraine Gabicol or <laughs> contact the BWRDC, how do they go on about getting in touch with, with either? Uh, oh, just Google us. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll come up. <laughs> Oh, yes, that's the benefit now of social media. If you tap in Lorraine Gabicol, you will appear. BWRDC, the organisation, yep. will appear. And I conclude, when shows and events and uh, race meetings are back on, you have a presence there that... Uh, we do. Uh, even if they've never done anything before, they can just turn up and sit and have a chat with you if they want. 
Yeah, and we encourage people who aren't actually competing now who think they might like to, we will encourage them to buddy up with someone who is already competing, who's perhaps local to them or who's going to be competing at a circuit near them and pass them tickets when you're allowed to give spectators. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, just at the moment, I've attended a couple of meetings. All of a sudden, I happen to be sponsor, co-owner, team member or whatever all of a sudden i've taken on a multifarious number of roles this year as to what i might be doing within the world of motor racing it's quite yeah. nice actually <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's been a very strange year and, and i think it's going to remain that way for a good six months yet yeah but it, it will come round again it will get sort itself out and and we're actually all learning how to to manage the situation we yeah. had a rally at donnington park recently and no longer do we have a formal scrutineering we submit all our scrutineering information online before the event and then they do spot checks to to confirm what you said you've claimed yeah and and covid has has made the governance of the the sport think about these things yeah take away some of the the onerous jobs that that really and cut down on the, the red cut down on the <laughs> cut down on the red tape. It has cut down on the red tape, and so now instead of having to turn up two hours before an event to join a queue to do to have your car checked, you haven't got that. You haven't got people climbing all over your car anymore, checking it, and for fear of catching COVID. But yeah, it has enabled motorsport to rethink it, and and in rallying the time cards, it's all done much more electronically. There's no handing over scraps of paper backwards and forwards and people writing things down. Most sport is is evolving to to cope with COVID and and actually moving forward in a a much more IT-based way, really. Lorraine Gathercall, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Another one of my... Believe it or not, I was working it... Somebody worked it out the other day. I have a ratio of two to one women racers versus men racers. It's proof that women racers are making a four are making themselves far better known in this industry than the men are. Come on, men, do do something. <laughs> We're just a bit noisier, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> but once again, Lorraine, it's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thanks very much for joining me on the Backseat Driver Radio Show. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. It's been delightful. Cheers. Thanks very much. Thank you. Backseat Driver Podcast is brought to you in association with Tim Nash and the Lombard Rally Festival, the UK's premier classic rally demonstrations. From the awesome Group B cars to cars from the golden era of rallying, go to the Lombard Rally Bath social media for dates and venues. Rarely beaten on price, never beaten on service. Whether it's cars, bikes or commercials, Hoddy Tyres are the best in the business. And when it comes to tyre expertise and advice to supplying the correct tyres for your vehicle's specific requirements, nobody comes close to David Lakin and the Hoddy Tyres team. So give them a call on 01200 613 192 or visit the website at hoddytires.co.uk.